Are you looking for freedom? Freedom from the daily grind and hustle? Or just finding a way to live the life you always wanted? Then join us on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Our host, Mike Ayala, will help you discover new ways to find freedom with tips, insights, and interviews. You'll learn the exact systems he's used to travel the world and live his best life. True success and happiness are all about freedom. And here's your roadmap on how to find freedom on your own terms. Welcome to the Investing for Freedom podcast. Here's your host, Mike Ayala. Thank you for joining me on the Investing for Freedom podcast. Today, I have a show that I'm really excited about because I met our guest at an event. Uh, we have a mutual friend, Kyle Depius, and, and we got to talk on the golf course and, and just spend some time together, which is one of the reasons why I love doing these types of events and masterminds. The relationships that you take away from them are so amazing and impactful. But I was really inspired by uh, Chris Noggle's story. And so, Chris, I really appreciate you being on the show today. Oh, it's an honor and a privilege. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Um, so, Chris, you've got a really unique and interesting background. And, you know, this is the Investing for Freedom podcast. So why don't we just jump in and why don't you tell my audience about your journey to financial freedom? It's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah. My journey starts like many of yours. You know, it started with a lower, lower middle class family. Dad was an alcoholic and my mom raised me. And the one good thing I had about my upbringing is my mom, even though we had very little, grew up in a 700 square foot, two bedroom house out in a little town called Lockport, is my mother never stopped me from dreaming. I had the craziest ideas as a kid, as most kids do, but my mother never said, oh, that's silly. You can't do that. My father did, but my mom didn't. If I wanted to, if I had the vision of digging a giant pond in the backyard, my mom said, go grab the shovel and start digging. If I had a, an idea to get a dirt bike, she said, okay, well, what's it going to take to get it? Like, just start saving. And she taught me simple principles of saving. And it started with watching her struggle and then watching how when she needed a new lawnmower, she would save literally her change in this big glass thing. And I just remember it was super fun for me. And it was almost like a game. Like today it would be video games. Back then it was watching all that spare change. And every time we'd go out, you know, for food or something, she'd take the change. We'd come back and she'd show me how she put it in this glass thing. And then we'd time, you know, from time to time, go in, empty it out and then roll coins. I, I don't even know if kids today even know how to roll coins or even what that is, but that's what we did. And eventually my mom bought that new lawnmower. And I remember the joy that I had. I was just a kid. Like kids don't get excited about lawnmowers, but the joy I felt when that new Sears Craftsman lawnmower showed up, it was, it was awesome. So then the next thing was, is she got me this little black box with the slide top. And I would, I would go shovel driveways, mow lawns. I worked on the farm across the street and uh, I would just save every penny. And that's eventually how I got that first goal, which was a dirt bike. But fast forwarding through that, you know, I, I was also normal because I got a, a regular job at 16. I got a big boy job working at a restaurant and unfortunate, but fortunately for me, that restaurant owner was an absolute monster. He treated me so awful. He, he degraded me every day. I literally would leave work every day thinking I was worthless. I could do nothing right. He, I think, I swear, I think he would like send me out to the cooler, which was out back, to get something that he knew wasn't there so that when I come back, he could yell at me and tell me how stupid I was. How could I not see it? Don't make him have to go out there. And this is what I dealt with. And I remember the one day I came into work and I just had it. You know, every, everybody has a breaking point. And I hit the breaking point that day and I just screamed, I quit. Now I'm 16 at this point. I didn't know that was the day that I was going to quit trading hours for dollars. But that's exactly what happened because I came home so devastated upon uh, about working for someone that I said to my mom, I said, I'm sorry, I quit my job, but I have a plan. You know, I always had an exit plan. 
I'm going to start a clothing line in the basement. I've had this idea. It's going to be called Fat Clothing Company, P-H-A-T. Me and my art teacher, Mr. Mahalski, are going to print shirts. And that was my first company. I went down. I filed for a DBA, Fat Clothing Company. This is 1992. And I started printing shirts with my art teacher. I'd sell them out of my backpack. Then I got some friends in school who wanted a shirt. So I'd give them a free shirt and they'd sell shirts for earning that free shirt. And I built this company up. And over the course of a year, I was another big goal at this time is I wanted to be a pro snowboarder. I live in Buffalo, New York. I don't know if any of you know much about Buffalo, but we get a lot of snow, but we don't have mountains. This isn't the epicenter for snowboarding, but I had a goal. And there was one guy, Blair, and well, two guys, Blair and Shane, who were pro Burton riders from Buffalo that I saw made it. And I said, if they can do it, I can. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have the money to go to the hills and the resorts, but I had a, a not a ski hill, but it was a country club where I would go and build jumps out of the sand traps. And that's how I did it. And I remember I'd sell shirts just to get enough money to then go to the resorts uh, and travel to Syracuse and eventually New Hampshire and Vermont. But along the way, I would sell my clothing. And I had maybe 20, 30 accounts on the literally all the way down the 90. And I would sell my clothes. And then at 17, my next big idea was, hey, listen, I've seen all these shop owners who own these awesome skateboard snowboard shops. I want that. So again, I, I was just untapped. I was a dreamer. I didn't realize that a 17-year-old can't just go get $70,000 from the bank. To me, I wanted the goal. I wanted the shop. And it was going to be called Fat Man Board Shops because it was fat clothing and I was the man. Put the two together and that's what you had. Well, I got told no by everybody. My father told me how stupid of an idea this was and that I should go get a job at the factory and work 30 years, get my pension and be content. Well, I sent my dad cats in the cradle. To, it was a cassette tape back then, the single, and we didn't talk for almost two years after that. But it came down to me almost abandoning the goal. And I don't know how your audience, how many of you have ever had a dream, but everybody beats you up. Everybody says you can't do it. Everybody makes you believe in their failed dreams, their failed realities. Well, that was my life. Like everyone else from aunts, uncles, father, friends, banks. They all wanted me to adopt their failed dreams, their failed reality, because they couldn't do it. And my mother saw this, and I'll never forget the day I came home. A bank had given me a shot, and they said, hey, kid, we like the idea. What do you have for collateral? I didn't even know what collateral was, Mike. I'm just like, uh, collateral, what is that? Something to secure the loans, an asset. Oh, okay, I got a 1986 Buick Skyhawk. I got a KX125. I got this awesome baseball card collection with some football and some hockey. No, 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 kid, like something substantial. I had nothing. So I came home and I told my mom this. And the only thing my mother had in the world was her house. And this, this little 700 square foot house, which literally was worth about $80,000. And she made the decision to put her house on the line so that her punk 17-year-old kid could chase his dream. And November of 1994, Fat Man Board Shops opened its doors in the Lockport Mall. Today, 2022, Fat Man Board Shops still exists, still flourishes, still operates, still all over social media. I don't own it. I sold it in 2010. But that legacy will continue on, hopefully, until the day I die. And that was the dream. So one of the things that happened after that, and I'll get to the end of the story very quick, and I'll, I'll transition into the money, because I don't have any money knowledge. I just was a dreamer. And I was a pro snowboarder. That was it. That's all I had at this point. And uh, when the planes hit the tower, I'll never forget. I had just gotten back uh, in town in Buffalo from a trade show in California. I'm driving to my brand new store that we just opened in Orchard Park, New York. And I remember hearing about a plane hitting the towers. So many of you that, are, that aren't old enough probably don't even remember this. But Mike, you do. And 
it was a tragic day and we thought, oh, it must have just been a little plane, but we realized that was an attack. Mm-hmm. And the dot-com recession hit right after that. I'd never been through a recession, folks. I had no idea what this meant, but when my store's sales dropped 30%, when I looked at those $1,000 in mutual funds dropped 30, 40%, I started to learn really quick, wow, this is, this is a recession. And I had to get a job. So I was going to deliver pizzas because I just needed like just a thing to get me by. You know, everything in life is temporary. And I knew that. And I just needed to get through this stormy season, which was the recession. So I thought I'll just deliver pizzas at night. That'll give me a little extra cash. And then I can, you know, do what I need to do. But Little Caesars wasn't hiring. And that's a true story. I put my resume out. And the only companies that ever got back to me were, were Wall Street firms. Like, what the hell? Does Wall Street want to do with this kid that wears a hoodie, a beanie, and snowboards every single day? But they wanted the self-starter. They wanted the entrepreneur. And I went and interviewed, and I took the job. And that was 2003 that that happened. And I thought it was going to be a temporary thing, but it ended up being a 16-year jaunt in Wall Street. And that's how I started learning the traditional financial knowledge. And I rose to the top because in Wall Street, it's funny. I was just a kid. I didn't know anything about this, but I got my licenses and I was in the bullpen and all the guys around the outside had those big glass offices and they wouldn't really talk to the kids in the middle. They're like, ah, those kids will be gone in a week, a month, whatever. Most of them were because it's commission only. And I remember thinking, I'm like watching these guys. They got there at about nine o'clock in the morning. They'd leave for two hours for lunch and then they'd be gone by 430. And I thought, how in the world do these guys make that much money if that's all they work? All I've ever done is work. So I said, all right, well, if I want one of those offices, I'm going to get here at seven. I'm going to make do all my paperwork in the morning. I'm going to work through lunch because people answer the call. And then after that, I'm going to work till six and seven at night. That's exactly what I did for years and years. And I rose to be one of the top financial advisors. And by 2008, I was crushing it. I was making hundreds of thousands of dollars. I was the young rookie star. I don't want to call myself a rookie at that point, but I was the I was the star in the office, one of the top three reps in there, uh, just you know, had the nice car, the big house, and had flipped a couple houses in the meantime, because why not? My wealthy clients were in real estate. I'm like, well, let me try this flipping thing. So that's how I started in real estate. But in 08, I dove in and I bought a strip mall. Well, it wasn't. It was a dilapidated paint store because I was going to move my my biggest fat man store into the strip mall, and I was going to rent the other two. And I began this process by borrowing 300, I think it was 340 or 370 grand from a hard money lender. And then you all know what happened in 2008, right? Here's recession number two. The Great, the great Recession hit. And it didn't just hit for me. It, it hit like a Mack truck going 80 miles an hour into your car. That's what it felt like. Everything shut down. My, my business's sales flatlined. My financial advisory business, which was just printing money for me at that point, flatlined. No one wanted to do anything. I was in damage control. And then all of a sudden, I had a 300 and some thousand dollar hard money loan at 15% that I had to carry. And I, I'll never forget, I got to be looking at all my accounts. I drained all my life insurance, took all the loans. I took my loans from my 401k. I had nothing left. And I remember thinking, I'm going to go bankrupt. So I came home to my brand new girlfriend who just moved into my house. And I did what any other guy would do. I'm just joking. It's probably not what any guy should ever do. And I looked her in the eye late at night and I said, sweetie, I need your help. I need your help paying the mortgage. I need your help paying the utilities. And my buddy Pete is going to move into that bedroom down the hall. And my friend Jessica is going to move into the bedroom upstairs. Any questions? Now, maybe you could say I had a little bit of an ego back then because I thought I had about a 50-50 shot of making it. 
later my friends were like, dude, you had less than a 10% shot of her sticking around, but she did. I think she kind of liked me. And now we're, we've been married for a while. We have a 21 month old, but that's how I made it through that recession. 2009, straight through 14, I just did what Warren Buffett said. I bought low. Real estate was cheap. I bought apartment buildings, pennies on the dollar. I, I literally spent every penny I made, I put back into this real estate. It was a tough time. Like It sounds like a great time because I got up 36 units, but I was so freaking broke, Mike. I could barely make ends meet. When something would go wrong in one of the apartments, I literally had no idea how I was going to pay it. I'd have to wait and tell the tenants and, and, and sometimes like tell white lies to the tenants that, hey, we'll get that faucet fixed. And I'm literally waiting for rent. I'm waiting for the next round of rent just to make sure that, that I can fix that faucet. And uh, that went. that's how I did it all the way up to 14. And then in 14, I made some critical errors. I grew too fast. I was highly leveraged. I didn't understand how money really works. I only understood traditional finance. And uh, then all of a sudden, the bank slapped me with a letter and said, uh, they're, they're not going to do a loan for me, which was my 38th or 37th unit. It was like a, a double 38 units. They said no. And then they said, you know, and not only that, we're going to have to freeze your lines of credit. Hmm. And I'm like, why? I use these. That's, that's how I get all these houses done. Well, you don't fit in a little debt to income. When we under, we're doing the underwriting, you didn't fit in a little box is basically what they were saying. So they froze my line of credit, which then snowballed. It was a domino effect. And then I ended up having to sell every single one of those 36 properties. Not only did I sell those 36 properties, I had to then sell our dream house, 171 Radcliffe. Me and Larissa split. I went to Thailand for a month to clear my head. And when I came home, I, I literally started questioning everything, Mike. I, I had gone to an event, a real estate event. I got a postcard during this period. And the postcard said, uh, come to this three-day event to learn how to flip houses. That's what the front said. But on the back, it said, come to this seminar and we will give you a free iPod shuffle. So I had nothing to lose. I was losing it all again for the you know, second, maybe even third time. But I had an iPod shuffle to gain. So off I went and I met Mike and Greg, two incredibly wealthy individuals. And they were talking about money. So I was in the back. I, I think I even had a suit on. That's like how disconnected I was from reality. I'm in a real estate event with a suit on. And they talk about money. I perk up. But what they were saying was the complete opposite of every single thing that I had learned in Wall Street. It was everything that I had learned, they were contradicting and saying the opposite. And I dove down the rabbit hole and I started following them and a bunch of other wealthy individuals. And I'll save a lot of the details. But what I found is that what the wealthy do with money is the complete opposite of what we're taught from our advisors, from our schools, from everything. It is literally 180 degrees different. I went down that rabbit hole and today is 2022 and I started that rabbit hole in 2014 and I have literally uncovered the secrets of what the wealthy do and how money really works. And the hardest part about what I do today is the truth hurts. And when I tell people, they really either say it sounds too good to be true or they say that can't work that way. But that's what I do. I teach tens of thousands of people that simple thing, the six laws of wealth and the secrets of how money really works. Sorry, that was long. No, it's great. Actually, it's great context. And, um, you know, I, I knew this was going to be an amazing conversation. Just let you roll with it because the, the, the background is, is really great. So I definitely want to get into the money store and everything you're up to now. I actually, um, you know, after we met, I've, I've followed you and continued to learn from you. I even told you, like, I jump on your lives and I don't spend a lot of time on, on uh, you know, people's lives. I don't spend a lot of time on social media, to be honest, and uh, which would probably be a surprise to most people because, you know, I just get in there and get it done. 
Um, but I really appreciate your content. And I really appreciate the simplicity behind it. And it's very intriguing to me. So I want to get into the money store. But the first question, you've been through, basically, you said you've lost it almost three times. You've been through a couple of recessions. Um, I feel like I owe it to my audience to get every opinion and thought process. And I know that none of us have a crystal ball. But like, what do you see going on? Because everybody's asking the same questions. And you know, we were even talking a little bit off camera, not even about money, but just the future of, you know, our children and everything else. So I'd like to just take a minute and, and uh, ask you to pull out your crystal ball. And like, where do you think we're at? Uh, yeah. You know, we've printed trillions of dollars, everything's crazy. And I'm guessing you're going to bring us back to, you know, just the foundational laws. But where do you think we're at? Yeah, I'm really glad I wore this hat today. It says haters need hugs too. Because <laughs> when I tell you what I'm about to tell you, you know, there's going to be a lot of people that aren't going to believe it, and not want to hear it. And some people will you know, become haters, which is perfectly fine because I have studied history more than just about any average person to the equivalent of, you know, economists and everything else. And I, I've done this. I've, I've made it my, my passion literally to just read and study and understand patterns, cyclical cycles, uh, signs that are happening and what they mean. So here, I'll, I, I, my crystal ball has been broken for a while. It's been in the shop. A guy just cannot seem to get it to work. But I'm gonna, I'm just gonna go off of intuition and logic and tell you where we're at. We're at the end, okay? And I don't care whether you believe this. If you think this is still gonna keep going to the moon, if you think the stock market's gonna keep pushing higher because they're printing money, you are wrong. And there is no way you will ever win an argument with me or any economist on this. And I'll tell you why, because it's very easy to see where we're at in a cycle. It's very easy to see where we're at in everything based on time, based on history, and based on very rhythmic, predictable patterns. Now, I don't care whether you follow the short-term debt cycle, the long-term debt cycle. I don't care whether you follow the capital market cycle. And I don't care if you don't know what any of those mean. Just listen up. All of these different cycles have happened since the beginning of time. You can go back to Roman times. You can go back to the 1500s and you can literally just time it out. And within a couple of years, they all happen precisely and exactly the same way. So a lot of people are in today and they're like, this is unprecedented. No, it is not unprecedented. Oh, they never printed this much money. No, but they printed lots of money in the past. And in the grand scheme of printing money, they, they printed the equivalent amount. It was just less money back then because dollars were worth more back then, or you can look at inflation. It was just a different time. So the easiest thing to look at is where we're at. And I'll get right to it. If you look at all the other recessionary periods and you really just boil down similarities to where we're at today, you will arrive very precisely at 1929. Actually, you'll go back to the early 20s, uh, 1920s, and you will see the roaring 20s, which is what we've been living for you know over a decade now. We've been living what would be the modern day roaring 20s, where everything's good, everything's going up, everybody's making money, there's no problems. Hell, kids today don't even know anything other than good times. And, and you know, good times like this create weak, you know, weak people. And I'd say it, weak men, weak women, weak people. Strong or hard times create strong men. Go back to the World War, go back to any of those hard times that create strong men and women. We're in a weak period of time. And we're in a weak period of time because of the cycle. We're at the end of a really long cycle, which is the long-term debt cycle. So you can't, you can't disagree that the government's severely in debt. Most people are severely in debt, and debt has become a very easy thing because credit has been made abundant in a way that uh, never before in history has been this abundant. And it's been made that way because the government has, and let's, let me 
be clear about this. When I say the government, there's two parts, okay? There's the, the government, and then some people think the Fed is part of the government. It is not. The Fed or the central banks is a completely separate entity. It is not directly associated with the U.S. government, but they make you think it is. It's, it's the biggest families in the world, the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, and I think Satan's involved somewhere in there too, but we won't go there. So the Fed has the best product in the world, hands down, and they know it. And that dollar is the dollar, okay? The dollar is the best product in the world. And the Fed will go to any length, including wars, anything. You're seeing it today to protect the dollar. The dollar is the reserve currency. The dollar is the, the currency that is you know, used to value crude. And the dollar is the thing that everybody in every country wants. So we are at the end of this long-term debt cycle. There is no question where we're going next. You can see it. And it's not because of a lot of people like, oh, yeah, it's the Russia-Ukraine war. That's what's going to bring it down. Absolutely not. It's, that's a blip on the radar, but that's a natural thing because we're just – there's so much going on. War is inevitable. Okay, Whether it turns into world war or not, I don't think so, but it doesn't matter. The, the stock market is going to crash, and I can't tell you when, and no one can. Ray Dalio can't. Warren Buffett can't. But I can certainly tell you with utmost certainty – probably 99.9% .9 certainty, just like that Lysol you spray to kill everything. It's 99.9% certain, not 100%, that you will see the next recession or I think the next Great Depression inside of the next three years. And people argue with me and they say, no, the government will just print their way out. The government is running, running out of reasons to print and running out of the means to print money. The pandemic, great, you know, it was a great way for them to print $5 trillion. Then the infrastructure deal was supposed to print another three. It didn't make it through. Now you've got war. Great reason to print money. And I believe this is where I struggle because I don't know what's real or what's not anymore. But I believe they did an executive order to print $1.9 trillion, but don't hold me to that. So all this printing of money creates massive debt. And it's all by design. It, it drives inflation, which many people think the government doesn't want inflation. The government does want inflation. It is a fantastic thing for the government. And it would be a fantastic thing for you if you were the government owing trillions of dollars in debt. Because if you devalue the dollar, when they print a dollar, your dollar becomes worth less. Okay, That's inflation. Your value, your purchasing power of your dollar is, is worth less. That's all inflation is. It's a hidden tax. Many people think inflation is when the cost of goods and services go up. The cost of goods and services go up because of two reasons. Number one, your dollars buy less of it. Number two, supply and demand. So you have a lot of both of them. The supply and demand is, as they call it, transitionary or tra uh, transitory, I think is the word they like to use out there, because that will balance itself out. The ports will open back up and supply and demand will balance, but your dollars will never buy as much as they did yesterday, as much as they did a year ago, as much as they did in 1913 when the Fed was created because they've been printing money. So because of all this and, and many other factors that I'm not going to get into, you can expect that your such valued index funds will go down. The entire market will go down. The first leg by numbers, by support and resistance lines should be about a 51% drop. So then the question comes, if you even believe remotely anything I'm saying, and if not, just study some things. Ray Dalio has got a great video that explains this. Uh, if you believe any of this, then you should really go back to what Warren Buffett says. Warren Buffett makes things so simple. He says, to make money in any investment, there's three things you need to do. Number one, you need to buy low. Okay, so let me bring you back to today. If you're buying stocks today, 
you are absolutely positively buying high. You're not buying low. You're buying at one of the highest points in the market. Oh, but it's down off the high. She'll never get the high and you'll never get the low. This is the highest point. So you should buy low, which means don't buy today, or I could give you an asset class to buy that's going down. Number two, sell high. So now if we're at the all-time highs in the S&P and the NASDAQ and in Dow Jones, wouldn't that mean now is a great time to sell? Okay, so buy low, sell high, and don't lose money. And then he goes on to say, when others are greedy, be, be fearful. There's a ton of greed out there right now. Everybody, it just seems like there's so much greed. So be fearful. And when others are fearful, be greedy. We haven't seen that yet. You've seen a little bit of it in the crypto space with the last sell-off from 65 down to 28. I was buying, but I've already exited that. So that's where we're going. And then, you know, some people are like, oh, so what should we do? Buy real estate. Well, yes, real estate is a great asset, the single best investment on earth, in my opinion. But real estate will also drop because it is a speculative bubble in real estate. So if you're putting all your eggs in that basket, well, you're going to get hurt. But if you're doing the rental game, like Mike, you know, you should take some advice from Mike on that, like mobile home parks and different things that are steady eddies and great in a, a downtime. If you're if you're renting your way through that, the cash flow will be fine. Just make sure you build into your numbers about a 10% variant in the rent roll. So in other words, like if you're doing your numbers at today's rents, drop them 10 to 15%. Can you stabilize and maintain based on the purchase price you pay? If not, you're in, you're in a danger zone. And I know this because I lend a lot of money. So this is how I'm underwriting right now. I'm looking at a 15% fall in rental prices just to, you know, does it support itself? And then I'm also looking at about a 20 to sometimes 25% drop in where the price of the real estate is today. So if you're doing real estate, great if you're renting and if it supports itself with that variant put in there, not so good if you're flipping, not so good if you're planning on exiting whatever real estate you're buying in the next five years, I would even say 10 years, you more than likely will not get what your property's worth today in the next few years or maybe even the next decade. So that's where we're at. But in saying that, the doom and gloom is, is what you're taking out of that. But for me and people like Mike and many of you listening, this is the single greatest opportunity of your lifetime if and only if you are ready, if you've planned, if you know this is coming, if you know there's a storm coming, you just get ready for it. And then that storm isn't so bad. In this case, this storm, this economic collapse could be the greatest opportunity. During 1929, when the Great Depression hit, do you know how many millionaires were made out of that? And back then, a millionaire was like a billionaire today. You know how many were made then? During 2008, you know how many billionaires were made in that time? Yes, all you hear from the news is everybody that loses, but you don't hear the people that were ready, the people that uh, you know were, were planning for it. They all became billionaires. Same thing with COVID. So that's where we're going, Mike. And I know it's doom and gloom, but man, it's it's exciting if you know what's what's happening. Yeah, no, I appreciate the perspective, and I like that you know you're you're rounded. A lot of times we get in our little circle where it's like I'm a real estate guy, I'm a stock guy, I'm a business guy, whatever, and I like. I like that you've got all the different viewpoints and one more like specific question that I've had a hard time reconciling. I, I love everything that you said about real estate, even, you know, the, the prices coming down and um, the thing I've had a hard time reconciling and I have so many real estate buddies that are like, you know, this is the cheapest money we'll ever find. Um, lock it in long-term debt, which, okay. My brain agrees with that. Um, well, I guess the first question is, is this the cheapest debt we'll ever see, or at least see for a long time? For a long time, absolutely, yes. 
So that, and that sentiment, that's absolutely correct. You know, you probably never going to see loan rates or mortgage rates this low, which does factor into your real estate purchasing. Cause if you're only paying two or three or 4%, when in a couple of years from now, you might be six, seven, which was where we were at. That doesn't seem like it was that long ago. You know, when I was buying all those properties, there were six, 7%. So yes, you can buy a property that's worth, that costs more and support that because your, your cost of borrowing is less. Yeah. And so that's what a lot of my real estate friend and, and a big part of my audience is either in real estate or wanting to get in real estate. Um, th- that's what we're trying to just, you know, I'm, I'm constantly trying to get different perspectives around this. Um, and, you know, even like you're saying with the doom and gloom, I think it's really good yeah. to have honest conversations and different viewpoints because when we get in our little echo chambers, like that's where we get into trouble. And so interest rates being as low as ever, yet real estate is as high as ever, which part of that probably correlates. And then you throw in, you know, all the inflation and everything else. And you said something earlier too, like, you know, I've said this for a long time, like make as much fake money as you can and invest it in real assets. And what is that? You know, that's the real question that we're trying to sort through. And in my mind, because I'm a real estate guy, it's primarily real estate, partially businesses, business teams, even behind that real estate. Because a lot of times, you know, when you get to 38 units, yes, you have an asset, but also that team that's behind that asset is so important too whether it's outsourced, whether it's your in-house team, all of the above. And so I'm just trying to, here's, I guess here's my direct question. Real estate's high, interest rates are low. If we can get that debt locked in long-term, I think it's, I think it's still probably a good time to buy. The thing I'm having a hard time reconciling is if wages aren't keeping up, if we're going to go into some kind of recessionary period where people are going to lose money, um, I, I think we have to segment that too into what kind of asset classes as well. And you you know, you, I'm a fan of mobile home parks, obviously. Um, but I think we're going to have some struggles ahead of us too. And so I liked that you pointed out, you know, that rent decrease, but also asset classes, because there's so many, you know, I look left and right, and I see these amazing, we're driving down the road, and there's apartment buildings left and right that have golf simulators, and they have seven pools, and they have, and I'm just like, I don't know how great of an asset class that really is. So I'm trying to reconcile all that. Any thoughts around it? Oh, absolutely. Yes. And, and that's something that, you know, sometimes, you know, I can make my statement that everything's going to go down and then we need to quantify what a good investment is. I already said real estate is the greatest investment on earth, but it matters what kind of real estate you're buying to plan for this. With cheap money, there's no question you want to use as much cheap money as you possibly can to buy real estate. But if you're buying into syndications, you know, and I'm not going to name any names, but we've seen it all on social media, these really fancy apartment complexes with 16 pools, saunas, every one of them has an outdoor terrace with a hot tub on it. That is not the asset class you want to be buying right now, because I will tell you, here's what will happen. The market will collapse. When the market collapses, people will will start becoming fearful. When they become fearful, they will sell assets, not because they want to, because they're all believing that, oh, if I just hold out the long haul, I will be okay, which they would, but they can't because when fear kicks in, reality comes next. And what is reality? They get laid off. Something happens where they they, they don't have an income stream they did. Maybe a, a side hustle business just flatlines like my businesses did. All those things play into the next thing, which is they sell assets. When they sell assets, you enter a def- basically a, 
a deleveraging period, I guess is what I'll call it, where people start deleveraging. They start selling off assets to get rid of debts to, to basically pay for necessary things like housing. They need a roof over their head. They need to make sure there's food on the table. They need to pay the college tuition. All those things are mandatory and the assets get sold because of that. So I would focus right now in using cheap money to buy assets that are going to matter when everything falls apart. B and C apartment buildings. Now they're not sexy. You're not going to go on and do a Facebook walking through your your C class or B class apartment building and be like, well, yeah, this is you know, there's a cockroach. Look at that thing. We're going to clean that up though. But like literally, like that is probably the asset class you want to really focus on because it's not what every well right now everybody's looking at everything, but that's the asset class that when everything falls apart, that you can just improve a little bit. And that's where people are going to have to go because they're not going to be afford the the fifteen hundred to three thousand luxury apartment, they're going to have to move down to that thousand, maybe $800 apartment unit because things will change. So condos, I think are extremely dangerous. Everybody's rushing into condos, which I don't understand. If 2006 and seven didn't teach us anything, it should have taught us that condos are probably not a thing that you want to overpay for. But hey, what do I know? 2006 and seven probably will never happen again, right? (laughs) We'll see. Uh, But also mobile home parks, you know, Mike, we've talked a lot about that. It is one of my favorite asset classes. My grandparents grew up in a mobile home park. I spent years and years and years in mobile homes. Like it just becomes norm. You might like frown on it, but hey, it's not so bad. And the people that live in them, they're actually pretty happy. And they actually pay their rent all the time. And they actually stay there for a long period of time. And it's a great asset class because no matter what happens in the economy, a lot of the people that occupy mobile home parks are on fixed incomes, sometimes government subsidized incomes, pensions and things of that nature, which usually are not all that much affected in a heavy recession or even a depressionary period. So mobile home parks are great. I think where you just got to be careful is the flipping world, which is what I come from. And we had the TV show in that, man, just if you're flipping your way to, to wealth, you better be super careful right now because pretty quickly the Fed just announced they're going to raise rates. They already raised them once, quarter point. They're going to do six more increases this year. And I wouldn't be surprised if they do seven. So do the math. How much is that going to increase your interest rate to borrow? And how much is that going to change the price of real estate when people can't afford these high prices? It's going to force the price down, deleveraging. It's absolutely what's going to happen. So Pick asset classes that will weather the storm, mobile home parks, B's, B and C apartment complexes. If you're flipping six months or less, and I would even say that's risky, but do that. Wholesalers, realize that if you're a wholesaler and you're crushing in wholesaling, wholesaling is transactional. And this nonsense I see going on in the wholesale world, I never could have even predicted could even be possible where one wholesaler buys a property from another whole or puts another property under contract from another wholesaler, which then sells it to an iBuyer or a hedge fund. Those days that will end like this. Right now, hedge funds are buying real estate because of what we're talking about. It's the single best place they can put their money. They're moving money out of Wall Street. And if you study Wall Street and look at the dark pools where the hedge funds trade, volume's way down. They're not trading stocks as much as they were. They're looking for alternative assets, real estate, BlackRock, Blackstone. You already saw the articles. Like Those guys are buying heavy real estate. That's how, that's how a lot of these wholesalers are making millions of dollars. That will end. Folks, it will end just as fast as it started, actually faster. And you just need to be ready for that. I know a lot of a lot of guys that I know that were in flipping and, you know, have done very well over the last 10 years. They're all they're all shutting it down right now. So it's interesting. Smart. 
one last real estate question, and then we'll get to the the good stuff that I know you really love, uh, the money store and be, be your own bank. I'm curious, uh, short-term rentals, like there's so many houses right now that I'm seeing get converted into short-term rentals. Every It's like the craze right now. What, what, how do you think that plays out through a recession? Probably not very well. Uh, you mean like Airbnbs and all the stuff? Right now you're seeing this big craze in that because remember, we were locked up like caged animals for almost two years. And, and now everybody just wants to get out there and hotel prices are going up and people just want an experience. They haven't had an experience for a year and a half, a year, whatever it is, depending on you know how locked down you were. Well, I'm in New York, like people were locked down like freaking zoo animals. It was sick. But uh, you know, people just want to get out and experience things. They don't want to go to a hotel. They've done that. They've been there. So they want an experience of being in a nice house that has cool things. And, and I love the Airbnb model. And I think in certain parts of the country, it will maintain and stay you know, relevant. But I think uh, you got to be very careful because when everything dries up, when people lose their jobs, they their portfolios drop 30%, everything deleverages and goes down in value. Uh, and right now, you know of inflation, so everything's going up, but that's called deflation when everything goes down. It's, it's what we all want because we want to buy assets cheaper. But if you're holding those assets, you don't want deflation. So it's a, it's a give take. So I think you'll be fine. And, and the cool thing about short-term rentals is if you ever got yourself in a pinch, if you want to really quantify your short-term Airbnb or your short-term rental, just run the math. If you couldn't Airbnb it, if if that town shut down Airbnbs, if people just weren't booking your Airbnb, if you had to just rent that to somebody, at what rent could you sustain that property? Forget about making money for a little bit, but where would it stabilize? And then is that in line with other rents in the area? If it is, subtract 10 to 15%, like I said, can you still maintain? Maybe it'd still it'd be at a loss, but if you had to reach into your pocket or your other assets, could you maintain that? You're good then. So I, I don't really know if I have a solid yes or no answer as to whether that's going to get hit super hard, but I would guess for sure it's going to get hit because I look at some Airbnbs. We are going to go, I speak um, next week at Secret Knock in California. We're going to rent an Airbnb and I could not believe the price people were asking for Airbnbs. I'm like, I can rent a penthouse at the Hard Rock and, and I can like have all the fun I want cheaper than I can rent an Airbnb, but it is what it is. Yeah, we're getting it. It's crazy. Well, I appreciate all your insight there. So let's get into BYOB, which um, isn't, you know, I mean, maybe you do need to bring your own beer, but how did this all come about? Let's talk about the money store. I, I love all the work that you're doing right now, because this is really the answer to all of this. I wanted to get a little bit granular and get your input on you know, what people could do and have some tactical advice. But really, at the end of the day, you know, you focus a lot on the six laws of money and uh, be your own bank and all of that. And I think that's really where, you know, you could probably give my audience some some real sound advice on, you know, I guess the best way to navigate their current and future. Yeah, it's, it's actually very simple and very logical. It's just the opposite of everything you've been taught. Remember, I said, Mike and Greg back in 14, when I met them, this is how I heard about this. And Basically, it comes down to this. The mistakes we make with money are the lies that we've been told about money. So the two are interchanged or in, interwoven, I should say. So what we have been taught to do is we've been taught to go out, work hard, and trade hours for dollars. We all have done that, right? You go out, you put a dollar value on your hour. And is it $20 an hour, $50 an hour, $100 an hour? Whatever it is, we put some type of a dollar value on our hour. And then we take those dollars that we worked hard for. And what do we do with them? What have all of you, Mike, what do you do with the money that you make when you earn it? What's the first thing you do with it? 
put it in the bank. <laughs> right. You put it in someone else's bank. We've all been conditioned. We walk into the traditional bank. We stand in the line. We give the teller our hard-earned dollars. The teller says, you know, thank you for making a deposit. And there's a little cup up above you that has suckers in it. So you grab one of the suckers, any flavor you want, tear the thing off. You're enjoying that while they're making a deposit. Look at the wrapper of that sucker. There's not a bank in this country that doesn't use this brand of sucker, and they're called dum-dums. So I want you to first think about that, because what we have been conditioned to do without even thinking about it is to take our hard-earned dollars that we worked for, that we traded hours for, which your hours are priceless, just so you know. And then we go in and we give up control of that money to a traditional bank, where what does that bank do? They put that money back in a, a little box in the back with their name on it in the vault. No, there's no money in the vault. Your money is sent out to work for the bank. And law number two of wealth is you must make your money work for you. So we'll get through the six laws of wealth. Law number one is you should keep one-tenth of the gross income you make, or save is another word for keep, save one-tenth of all the money that you make. That's, that's law number one. If you're not doing that, like the other laws don't apply. Law number two is make your money work for you. Your money's not working for you because you're giving up control of your money to the bank, and then the bank is sending that money to work for them. And the bank is making a spread all the way through this. And I, I do this in an example. I show how the bank actually makes your money go out and work in the form of loans. Now, a lot of people think of debt as bad, right? But if you read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, which most of your audience, I hope, has if they're in real estate, you will learn that there's good debt and bad debt. And you will learn that you can turn liabilities into assets. Traditional banks do that. Your deposit to that bank is a liability on the books until they convert that liability into a loan, which then it becomes an asset because that loan produces income for the bank and all they're working off of is a spread. If they pay you one and they loan it out at three, they're making a 2% spread. If they pay you one and lend it out at 10 for an unsecured loan, they're making a 9% spread. Your money is working for the wrong people. Your money's working for the big banks. Your money's working for Wall Street. Your money's working for hedge funds and investment banks because you gave up control of it. You put your money in the 401k. They didn't, they didn't make you do it. You did it because you've been conditioned to give up control of your money. 401ks are awful. I mean, I always tell people, put money in 401ks, but only up to the match, the 3% or whatever match they get. After that, you are a fool for giving up control of your money for 10, 20, 30 years. But you do it. I did it. I did it because my grandma told me to do it. So those are the mistakes you're making. You're giving up control of the money and your money is not working for you. So all I learned from Mike and Greg, and I've been on a journey and not only learned that it wasn't just Mike and Greg, it's the Rothschilds, the Rockefellers, the Morgans, the Stanleys, the Walt Disney's, the Ray Crocs, the Doris Christophers, the Warren Buffetts, down to the, the Joe Bidens, if you want to throw that one in there. They all use exactly what I'm about to tell you. But all of the people I talk to, most of them have never heard about this. You see, to change your entire financial future, it involves just changing one thing. It is literally that simple. We start with law number one, save 10% of your gross income. But the most important part after you decide to save 10% is where your money goes first. That's the one change. We have to change where our hard-earned dollars go first. So instead of putting them in someone else's bank, what I learned to do is to create my own bank and take my hard-earned dollars and change where those dollars go first. That's it. I have a machine that I learned about, a machine I always knew about, but had misconceptions about what this machine does and how it works. And that machine, and this is where everybody either tunes off of the podcast or maybe wants to listen. So I want to urge you all, just get past this next part. The machine I'm referring to is none other than a dividend-paying 
whole life insurance policy from a mutually owned company. Now, before you say anything, I want to quantify that. If you think I'm talking about the whole life that your broke-ass brother-in-law sells you or the whole life you buy from the insurance store down the street, you are wrong. I'm talking about a completely different design, a completely different engineered like way that these are built. And to go one step further is if you're still not believing this, then answer this one for me. Why is it that banks, traditional banks, where you've been conditioned to put your money, they put more money than they have in land and buildings into whole life insurance? Look it up. Bully, B-O-L-I, bank-owned life insurance. Google it. And what you'll find, you can look at the FDIC website, you will find that just the top five banks in this country, the top five, have $78 billion in whole life. And if you really look at all the banks in this country, $190 plus billion in whole life. And that number keeps going up tremendously. So why is it that traditional banks put a big, giant share of their tier one capital in whole life insurance, but yet you've been taught that whole life is the worst place to put your money by Dave Ramsey, Susie Orman, and all them? Well, it's because you've been lied to. Because life insurance companies want you to buy term insurance. It's the most profitable product they have. That's why that's all you ever hear. Buy term, invest the difference. Or buy IULs because those are incredibly profitable. Whole life, not really such a profitable prop or product for insurance companies because they always have to pay out. And Mike, let me just sum it up this way. Like you're a car guy and most of your listeners probably like cars. So imagine you're going to buy a car. You walk into the dealership and let's pick on a Ford dealership. And you see right there on the, on the showroom floor, a blue Ford Focus. And you say to your spouse, like, oh my God, that's the car. That's my dream car. Everybody in there would be like, is he talking about the Ford Focus? Like really something wrong with you? What did he smoke before he came in here? But then, you know, your wife, your wife or your husband talk you off the ledge and say, honey, we're not buying a Ford Focus. You're home and you're watching YouTube and all of a sudden you see a rally cross driver by the name of Ken Block going 130 miles an hour sideways around a turn in full control, driving a Ford Focus. Now, what is the difference between those two Ford Focuses? Are they the same car? Yes, they are. But the difference is Ken Block's was designed and engineered to do exactly that, go 130 miles an hour sideways in control. These whole life policies that I'm talking about are designed and engineered to do one thing and one thing only, banking. They are designed for you to deposit money in them and then immediately take that money and send it out to work for you. And in doing that, you tap into one of the most powerful things in the universe called compound interest. You see, insurance companies, whole life specifically, is the only vehicle that will allow you to put money into it the insurance company will pay you a guaranteed interest rate plus dividends. And then you, when you take that money out, the insurance company doesn't, you're not actually taking your money out. You're taking a loan and that loan is in advance of your death benefit while you're living. So the insurance company just gives you part of your death benefit while you're living so that whatever money you put in the account, let's call it a hundred bucks for simple math. You put a hundred bucks in and then I took $900 out to invest with Mike in a mobile home park. And don't get caught up in the numbers. We're just using simple math here. I put a hundred in. And I took 900 out. Mike, how much money's left in my bank, which is the whole life? $100. Yeah, $100, right? Now, most people that are thinking, wait, wait, no, they can't be. You just, you said, you put 100 in and you took 90 out. There'd only be $10 left because you're thinking like a regular bank. You're thinking like your Wall Street account. The insurance company has my $100. They're paying me interest and dividends. My 100 never left the account. I took a loan against my death benefit. The general account of the insurance company gave me the $90 that I gave to Mike to invest. And then Mike pays me 10% for my $90 loan for the mobile home park. So now I'm making 
10% of my money, plus I'm making interest and dividends and, and just, you know, just to throw numbers out, it's about five and a half to 6% that I'm making with dividends on all of my money. I literally just found a way to tap into uninterrupted compound interest. Then most people are like, yeah, yeah, but you're leaving out the most important part. The insurance company doesn't give you that money for free. Of course they don't. That loan the insurance company gave you is going to cost you interest. They're going to charge you interest. It's about 4% today. So now let's do the math. If they're paying you six and you got to pay, if they're, you're earning six and you got to pay four, what's the spread? Two. Okay. The first year, the gross spread is 2%. Remember how I told you banks make money on a spread? They take what they pay you minus what they charge somebody for a loan, and that's the spread. So what I've got now is if you're paying attention, you just heard something where now I found a way to make money twice in a guaranteed way, at least in the policy guaranteed. Mike, you know, I'm going to put my faith in him. He's going to pay me. It's not guaranteed, though. I found a way to make money twice. I'm making the spread from what the policy pays me to what it cost me to use that money. And there's ways to leverage that, that cost down to you, but we won't go there. And then I'm making 10% for Mike. And the best part is that's just first year. Year two, three, four, five, 10, 15, 20. My money never left my account. So my money continues to compound uninterrupted. So the second year, my spread got bigger. The third year gets bigger. The fourth year, fifth year, sixth year, 10th year, 20th year. My spread does one thing and one thing only gets bigger in my favor because of nothing other than mathematics called compound interest. Albert Einstein said, those that understand it, earn it. I'm earning it. Those that don't, pay it. The majority of the people out there continually just borrow from the tr traditional banks. They pay interest on those loans and they don't understand compound interest because if they did, they'd be the ones earning interest because they would have become their own bank instead of using somebody else's bank, giving up control of their money to that bank, and then doing the most foolish thing, which is why they give away dumb, dumb suckers, and that is borrowing their own money back at a higher interest rate than what they're making. But that's the lie we've been told, folks. When I heard this, I was in Wall Street. I knew what whole life was. I sold whole life. I knew what all the things. I thought I was genius. I heard this. It was the biggest, hardest thing for me to ever hear because it crushed everything I'd ever learned. I didn't know this was possible when I was in the industry. You think your advisor knows about this? I guarantee you they don't. It goes, this guy, Nelson Nash, pioneered this concept, um, I think in the late 90s. It was called the infinite banking concept. What I just explained to you, the circle of your money starting on the left side, which is in the policy, moving over to the right side, the loans, the paying off credit cards, all that, and then recapturing the money and having the money go back into my bank. Because that 10% interest, Mike's going to pay me on that loan that I made him, for that $90 loan. When he pays me that interest, where do you think that money's going to go? It's not going to go back in the traditional bank. It's going to go back into my bank because my bank is where I make all the money. And then I'm going to use that money again. And I'm going to make Mike a loan for more next time. It's going to be the loan plus the interest that he paid me. It just keeps compounding, folks. Love it. Be your own bank. It's good stuff, man. I want to be sensitive to your time. What are the other laws of gold? Yeah. So the laws of wealth, these are, these are from a, many of you have read the book, uh, The Richest Man in Babylon. You should read it again. The laws that I've created are modern day laws. Okay. But they're all taken from books, many books about the past. And we'll go before Christ with Babylon. The first law of wealth is a very simple one. I already told you that. It's, you must keep 10% of your gross income. If you're not keeping 10%, find a way to do that. But law number two is equally important is once you keep the money, that money needs to go to work for you. 
find ways to make that money go to work for you where it will make a higher return. I just showed you, you know, like if I loan money to Mike or I loan money to somebody, that's another way to make my money work for me. Law number three, and I think this is the most important one and one of the ones that is violated the most today, always protect your wealth. And you can protect your wealth three ways. First, and I just take it from Talladega Nights, Ricky Bobby, he says it best. If you're not first, you're last. When you're lending money, be first. Be in a first secured position. Be in secured position all together, okay? Banks don't like lending second or third position. They like being numero uno and so should you. Second, when you invest in things, invest in things that you know, like, and understand. Don't invest in things that you have no knowledge on because then you're probably gonna lose your money. And then third, invest with people that have knowledge, wisdom, and have failed in what they do. Because if you invest with somebody that has knowledge, maybe they say they have wisdom, but they've never failed and they don't truly have knowledge and wisdom because they don't understand the other side of the coin. So that's how you protect your wealth. The fourth one, again, another one that today a lot of the younger folks you know, are certainly violating. The fourth law of wealth is do not seek unrealistic returns. If you seek unrealistic returns, your money will flee you. And, and that has happened to me too many times in my life. We all want the big returns. We all get excited. Oh my God, it's 20% return. It's 30% return. Crypto world is notorious for this. If you seek those unrealistic returns and you go all in on those or even half in, there's a very strong probability that you're going you're gonna to lose all your money. So that's the fourth law of wealth. The fifth law is very simple. And, and one of the questions, Mike, you were asking me is what are the biggest thing that I you know, have learned or one of the biggest things I would change if I could go back and this is the one. Your entire existence, everything you do in business and your life should be focused around the fifth law of wealth. And that is everything you do should be done to solve somebody else's problem. You need to learn how to give. The biggest mistakes I made and all those failures, you know why I lost it all? I wasn't giving. I wasn't solving somebody else's problem. I was trying to always solve my problem. Bigger house, bigger car, you know, faster car, whatever. Me, 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 me. And because of that, I told you my story. I lost and I lost and I lost because I was focused on the wrong thing. Solve other people's problems. There's not a single wealthy individual in this world that isn't solely focused on that one task or at least somewhere in their life and their journey were focused on that task. Sixth law of wealth, simple. Everything you do in your life should be done to create a legacy that outlives you. You should be remembered when you're gone for something. And you're never gonna be remembered because you had the BMW, the big house or that. You're going to be remembered by the kind things you did. So create a legacy. And to me, my biggest legacy is my next book I'm writing. It is a legacy to my daughter. I am writing a book about these six laws of wealth and the 10 rules to prosperity. And that book is going to be the guideline, the principles that my daughter will be raised on. She will be raised on all six of these laws. She will never know what most people know about money. She will only know that there are six laws and how to follow those six laws and that those six laws will serve others very well because the more money you make, the more money you can give and the more good you can do in the world. So that is my legacy. What is your legacy? What are you going to leave this world and how are you going to leave it a better place? Love it, love it, love it. Man, I really appreciate your time. As I said, I'm a huge fan. Where can people find you? Because um, this was obviously an amazing hour, but you have so much information and wealth and the guests you bring on. And everything is just so valuable. So where, where do people come find you? Yeah, you know, if you guys like this stuff, the best place is just like back in 14, how I had to learn. There's a 90-minute video on my website, and it's Chris Noggle, N-A-U, 
G-L-E.com. Just go there. A, a thing will pop up to watch a 90-minute video. Now, I know it seems like that's long, but trust me, it'll be the best 90 minutes you ever spent. Watch that video. It will teach you that entire concept on infinite banking. So that's a great resource. Plus, you can get all my books for free. Uh, we give everything away for free, content, books. And then I'm on every single social media channel from YouTube, which is my favorite, and all of my social channels from TikTok to YouTube are The Chris Noggle. So again, you can go to chrisnoggle.com or any social media channel. And I've got hundreds of videos on all this stuff on YouTube. So the Chris Noggle is the name you look up. Awesome. Well, really, really appreciate your time, your information, your inspiration, and just all the knowledge and the experience, man. It's so valuable. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for letting me come on and share some of my knowledge. And hopefully it changes some financial futures for some of them. Thank you. Maybe we'll do it again in a year and, and see, what, see what it's looking like. Might be fun. <laughs> All right. Thanks. Thank you. If you've found value in this episode and you know someone who's wanting to start or move further along in their journey toward investing for freedom, I would be forever grateful if you would share this show with them and help me get this message out to more listeners. Also, if you enjoy what you've heard, I would appreciate it if you take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and share this with your friends. And until the next episode, cheers to moving further along in your journey of investing for freedom.